Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. He kōna e pūrangi tēnei nā te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. It's February 1908. A reporter from the New Zealand Herald walks down to the Wellington courthouse. There had been rumours of problems at the native land court and he figured he'd ask Māori at the court what was going on. Their answers were almost identical. They could not hear what the judge said. He could not speak Māori well. He spoke it like a Pākehā, he mumbled. Consequently, those who were not sitting in the front near the judge's table often did not know what case was being heard. More people came over to share their stories. One said there was a case where three people claimed the rights to a bit of land, but because no one had told the claimants when that case was being heard, only one of them was in court. So the judge just gave all the land to the guy who was there. The other two completely missed out. Other cases had dragged on so long that some Māori just gave up and went home. The reporter wrote, Some have gone back to places as distant as the upper Whanganui without a hearing. The expense of long journeys and staying for weeks in the city is no light matter. If we had this kind of dysfunction in a court today, it would be a massive scandal. But at the time, the problems this reporter described were relatively normal for the native land court. At the time that article was written, the court had been dismantling Māori land ownership for more than 40 years. Modern historians don't have many good things to say about the court. Professor Stuart Banner called it... Conquest by contract. Dame Judith Binney described it as... An act of war. And Sir Hugh Kafaru said the court was a veritable engine of destruction for any tribe's tenure of land anywhere. This episode, we're looking into the history of the native land court. Or as some called it, the Korte Tangofinua. The land taking court. Ko William Ray tenei. Ko Mani Dunlop tenei. No mai ki te Aotearoa History Show. Smoke bombs have been thrown onto Eden Park. Smoke bombs, flares, being an attempt to come onto the field. Last night, a most grievous railway accident took place at Tangiwai. We are marching to Parliament and no more land to be sold. A year after the Treaty of Waitangi was signed in 1840, 
all but a few fragments of land and waterways in Aotearoa were controlled by Māori. There were a few tiny islands of Pākehā settlement, mostly bits of land which had been purchased by missionaries or agents of the New Zealand Company. But over the next 180 years, the picture completely reversed. About 95% of Aotearoa's land area was transferred out of Māori hands. And although some of that land has returned to Māori ownership through purchases or as part of treaty settlements, it's still the case that the vast majority of land in Aotearoa is owned by non-Māori. A big part of how that land changed hands from Māori to Pākehā was the Native Land Court. And the story of the court isn't just about the transfer of land, but also the transfer of political power and intergenerational wealth. Yeah, to put it bluntly, this story helps explain why the median Pākehā had $151,000 in wealth in 2021, while the median Māori had just 42000 about a quarter as much. But before we get into the details of what the Native Land Court did, we kind of need to explain why it was set up in the first place. You've got to get some of that sweet, sweet historical context. Love me some context, even if it is depressing. Okay, so the English translation of the Treaty of Waitangi has a bit which says... The chiefs of the United Tribes and the individual chiefs yield to Her Majesty the exclusive right of preemption over such lands as the proprietors thereof may be disposed to alienate. Bit of a mouthful. Yeah, but it's actually pretty simple. The right of preemption meant Māori couldn't sell land to anyone except the Crown. Now that was pretty convenient for the Crown. It had a monopoly on buying Māori land, so it could set whatever price it wanted when it sold it to settlers. And in seven years, from 1846 to 1853, the Crown bought 13.2 million hectares of land. That's almost half of Aotearoa's total land area. Virtually all of these huge early land purchases were in the South Island. The Crown paid less than half a penny an acre on average, plus some promises to set aside land for Māori to live on and to build roads, hospitals and schools which would benefit Māori communities. But, surprise, surprise, many of those promises were not kept and some iwi, like Ngaitahu, became virtually Landless. By 1844, the Crown had spent £4,000 buying land from Māori and earned £40,000 selling it to settlers. Like we said, it was a pretty good deal for the Crown and extremely depressing context. Mm. The thing is, the British government really didn't want to spend their taxpayers' money to fund colonial expansion. They wanted colonies to be self-sufficient. And the way they did this in Aotearoa was by giving the governor a monopoly on buying and selling Māori land. The profit from land sales could then be used to fund the colonial government and to pay for more settlers to come to Aotearoa. Preemption had been sold to Māori partly as a way of blocking unscrupulous land speculators from triggering conflicts through dodgy land deals. They had hoped the treaty would secure Māori authority. But they quickly realised that selling land only undermined that authority. The Brits were quick to assert their authority on land owned by Pākehā. So, as land sales advanced, Māori political power diminished. In response, some Māori leaders created networks of hapū and iwi which refused to sell land. The largest and most influential of these networks was the Kingitanga, the Māori king movement, centred in the Waikato region. 
The Crown, the British Crown, wasn't too happy about this anti-land selling movement, but Governor George Grey went back and read the Treaty of Waitangi, realised it said that Māori didn't have to sell land if they didn't want to, and everyone lived happily ever after. What? No, of course not. Governor Grey claimed Kingitanga was threatening British colonial authority, sent thousands of troops into the Waikato and Bay of Plenty regions, and confiscated nearly 1.4 million hectares of land. New Zealand wars dragged on in a series of campaigns and led to further raupatu, or confiscations. By 1865, the Crown had military supremacy in large parts of Aotearoa. This enabled the settler parliament to impose new laws on Māori people and lands. Laws like the Native Lands Act, which established the Native Land Court. Okay, so that's the historical context out of the way. Time to get into the depressing guts of our story. The Native Land Court had one big job. To change the legal status of Māori land so it would be easier for colonists to buy or lease. So what were they changing about the legal status of Māori land? Well, that's a little bit complicated, so just bear with us for one second. First, we need to explain the different ways Māori and Pākehā understood rights to land. Imagine we have a thousand hectares of land and there are a hundred people living on it. Under a British system, that land could be owned through legal title, which is basically legal documents laying out which people own which bits of land. Any owner with legal title could alienate their share of the land. Um, Alienate, by the way, it's just a fancy legal term. It means to sell, lease or give something away. But in a traditional Māori system, no individual person could alienate land because land didn't really belong to individuals. Māori held rights to occupy and use the resources of the whenua collectively. These rights came from whakapapa, genealogy, which linked a hapū, or iwi, to the whenua, as well as rivers, lakes and coastline. Māori had rights to use resources within the territory of their hapū and the responsibility to preserve those resources for future generations. Now, this made the process of alienating Māori land pretty frustrating for settlers, because they might find one Māori person who was willing to sell them a bit of land, but unless they could convince the whole hapū to go along with them, it just wasn't going to happen. Now, this is where the Native Land Court came in. Yeah, so the court's job was to convert this Māori system of collective land rights into the British system of legal title. The theory was that a bunch of judges would listen to all of the oral history and other evidence which laid out the ownership of land under the traditional Māori system, then write up legal documents saying which bits of land belonged to which people. Māori would then stop asserting rights to land under the traditional system of whakapapa and oral history and instead rely on these written documents. And the original version of the Native Lands Act, which first established the Native Lands Court, had some provisions which actually look pretty good to modernise. For example, it said the court's decisions would be made by a panel of Māori judges assisted by a single Pākehā judge. So decision-making power would mostly be in the hands of Māori with deep understanding of tikanga Māori customary law. The Act also set aside the Crown's right of preemption, so Māori were free to sell or lease land directly to colonists. Theoretically, that meant more of the profit from land sales would go to Māori rather than the Crown. 
So far, you might be thinking, no, that doesn't seem so bad. Well, strap in, because from here on, things get, again, really depressing. Yeah. For example, that plan to give the court's decision-making power to Māori judges, that never actually happened. In 1865, the Native Lands Act was rewritten, and the Māori judges were demoted to so-called assessors, and actual practical decision-making power was given to the Pākehā judges. One Māori assessor, Wedemu Te Fiora, who had fought alongside British troops in the Waikato War, described the whole system as a scam and resigned his position. He gave a stinging rebuke to those who continued to participate in it. The assessors are of no use and have little or nothing to say to the cases being tried. They sit like dummies and only think of the pay they are going to get. And it's clear the Pākehā judges didn't think the court's job was simply to establish which Māori had the rights to which bits of land, but rather to get much of that land into Pākehā hands. As Judge Henry Munro wrote, I maintain that every legitimate encouragement should be held out to Māori to part with their surplus lands to those who can make the use of them for which they were intended. Judge Munro's words were based in a Pākehā worldview that saw land in Aotearoa as a resource. If it wasn't being used productively in Pākehā eyes for farming or housing or mining or some other form of profit, then it was surplus or wasteland. Māori didn't see land that way. For them, land was part of identity as well as the economy. And still is, because the word whenua means land, but it also means placenta. It is a reference to the belief all people are descended from Papatuanuku, the Earth Mother, and that they remain closely connected to that land. Some areas of the whenua might have special significance as a source of food or other resources, but all land had value. It didn't matter if it was being used productively in a Pākehā sense. Some land court judges may have just been ignorant of Māori worldviews, but others were just straight up hostile. Yeah, maybe the most hostile of all was Judge Frederick Manning, who described Māori as cunning as Satan and dangerous as the serpent. That guy was pretty racist even by 19th century standards. Maybe not the best person to have on the court. No, as legal historian Stuart Banner wrote... It is hard to imagine Judge Manning could have put all his disgust for the Māori and his hatred of his own job aside and devoted careful attention to the merits of each claim. Many officials most likely shared his indifference to issues of justice among Māori. For this reason, issues of the greatest importance to the Māori could be decided in the most casual offhand way. But the story of the Native Land Court is less about individual decisions of corrupt or racist judges. It's more about how the court operated as an institution. For example, the 1840 rule, which meant the court would only consider land ownership as it existed when the treaty was signed. Think of Iwi and Hapu playing musical chairs with their territories and boundaries. And then in 1840, the music stops. Those boundaries are locked in forever. And this caused some problems because the treaty was signed in the aftermath of the musket wars and many tribes had temporarily evacuated traditional lands to escape their rivals. So if one iwi had moved out of an area to escape an attack and another iwi set up a camp so that they could take tuna eels from a local river, who owned that land? 
tikanga Māori would usually privilege the first iwi given their deep links to the whenua through whakapapa, but the court following the 1840 rule might award the land to the second iwi. Also, for the first eight years, the court had something called the Ten Owners Rule. In short, it usually granted land blocks smaller than 5,000 acres to a group of only 10 owners. Sometimes larger blocks were also granted to just 10 people. <laughs> Sorry, I'm just, it's quite funny. <laughs> it's not funny, it's really depressing. It's just because there's no way that it could ever ha- happen in like 10 people. Judge, yeah, yeah. Just like ridiculous. Anyway. In theory, those owners were trustees. They were supposed to represent everyone with rights to that land, potentially hundreds or even thousands of people, reason why I'm laughing. But in practice, any of the ten owners could sell the land without consulting anyone. A famous example was the 19,000-acre Hiritonga block in the Hawke's Bay region. It was granted to ten owners in 1866. 17,000 acres of that land were sold within three years mostly to repay debts to storekeepers. More on that in just a second. In 1872, 554 Māori signed a petition to Parliament which said that... The storekeepers urged the grantees to sell the portions for which they were trustees for others. The sale was urged before the grantees were aware of what they were doing. Consequently, they sold for a small price. Partly in response to that petition, the Ten Owners Rule was changed so that all members of a tribe could be named as owners. But, ironically, this made it even easier for settlers to buy land. Yeah, because every named owner was a potential target for land buyers. And if anyone sold, that affected everyone with rights to the land. Land purchasers did stuff like release livestock, cut down trees, drain wetlands which made it very difficult for Māori to carry on life as normal. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to harvest kiruru if trees have been cut down, and it's hard to catch tuna if the wetlands have been drained. And even if some Māori wanted to adopt European-style agriculture, most couldn't because they struggled to access the cash to finance it. So... Given all these problems, you might be wondering why Māori agreed to go to court in the first place. Why didn't they just keep living on their land as they always had, relying on traditional methods to assert their ownership of land? While some Māori saw the court as a way of confirming their rights to land and resources, others wanted money from land sales to invest in livestock or housing or new technologies. The Crown framed the court as a way for Māori to shore up property rights and better participate in the new colonial economy emerging around them. But let's not be naive here. You heard what Judge Monroe said. The primary goal of the court was clearly to get more land for colonists. And one of the biggest ways this happened was through debt. Anyone who was owed money by Māori could apply to the court so their debt could be paid in land. Sometimes those were debts owed to storekeepers or private land speculators, but often they were debts to government departments. Government agents often deliberately offered loans to Māori so they could get hold of land in repayment, especially when those Māori were otherwise unwilling to sell land. Yeah, for example, here's part of a letter from a Crown land agent called James Mackay, writing about his attempts to get land from Ngāti Tamatera in the Hauraki region. I attempted in vain to get Nati Tamatera to treat for the sale of land to the government. They refused to take the governor's money. At this time, their old and influential chief, Taraya Nakuti, died and a very great feast was contemplated. And 
though the obstructives would not take money, they joined the friendly natives in procuring some thousands of pounds worth of flour, sugar, tobacco, tea, bullocks, sheep and clothing. So James Mackay is boasting about offering loans of food and other supplies to grieving Māori so they could do their bit to support a tangihanga, then forcing those Māori to pay back the loans and land. This wasn't a one-off, by the way. Government agents and private land buyers often used tangi as opportunities to get Māori into debt, then went to the native land court so those debts could be paid in land. Now, you might be wondering, why didn't Māori just refuse to take on these loans? Well, some did. But the thing is, even if you were never in debt, someone else's debt could still drag you into the court. Like, if one Māori who'd taken out a loan needed to sell land to pay debt, they could go to court on their own. But if other Māori with rights to the same land didn't turn up, well, the court sometimes just dealt with the person who was there. The others could miss out entirely and their land might be sold out from under them. And this was the key to the Native Land Court. A whole community could be forced to attend court by a single person who might have been caught up in debt. This undermined the system of collective decision-making, which was, and still is, a bedrock of Māori society. And this was no accident. Speaking in a parliamentary debate in 1870, Justice Minister Henry Sewell said the purpose of the Land Court was... The detribalisation of the Māori. To destroy, if it were possible, the principle of communism upon which their social system is based. And once you found out you had to go to court, that was just the start of your problems. Hearings were almost always in colonial settlements, often far from kāinga Māori, plus there were no fixed dates for hearings. You could spend days travelling, then wait for weeks or even months until the judge was ready to hear your case. And even presuming the court ruled in your favour, you then had to pay back all the debts you'd racked up while waiting. Going to the land court was expensive. Yeah, there were attendance fees, survey fees, lawyers' fees, food and accommodation costs. As the New Zealand Herald noted in 1883, Unless the lands in which Māori are interested are of considerable value, more money is expended in securing them than they are worth. So Māori might go to court hoping to secure their land, but ended up so heavily in debt they had to sell the land anyway. The key point is this. In theory, the Native Land Court was voluntary, but in practice, many Māori had no choice but to engage with it. In theory, it secured Māori land ownership, but in practice, it eroded it. The court's form and function was different from the outright confiscation which happened during and after the New Zealand wars, but it had the same effect. As Hone Kotuku of Waikato put it in 1876. The sword of steel is put out of use, but the sword of deceit is used instead. Between 1840 and 1900, Māori land ownership collapsed from 26.8 million hectares to 2 million. Only about 7.5% of Aotearoa's total land area was left in Māori hands. And the court didn't just cost Māori their whenua, as one MP noted in a parliamentary debate. 
I believe we could not find a more ingenious method of destroying the whole Māori race than by these courts. The natives come from the villages of the interior and have to hang about for months in our centres of population. The result is a great number contract diseases and die. Plus, there were all the normal problems of spending a long time away from home. You weren't available to look after elders or young children. You weren't around to plant the next year's crops. And it's not as if Māori were quiet about all of this. No. Between 1870 and 1900, Parliament received an average of 30 petitions complaining about the court every year. In the mid-1870s, Iwi held several large hui calling for kotahitanga, that's unity or solidarity, between Māori all over Aotearoa. They became known as the kotahitanga movement, and together they petitioned the Crown to replace the native land court with a Māori-run institution and recognise a separate Māori parliament. Several kehapu and rangatira within the kotahitanga movement had supported the Crown during the New Zealand wars. So, of course, the Crown listened intently and took the kotahitanga movement's concerns very seriously. What? No, William, have you not learned anything at all? <laughs> Definitely not. They basically ignored kotahitanga's request. So, in 1881, a kotahitanga hui at Waitangi resolved to go higher up the chain. The next year, a delegation of rangatira travelled to England hoping to meet with Queen Victoria. They had a petition requesting a royal commission to abrogate the evil laws affecting the Māori people and to establish a Māori parliament which shall hold in check the European authorities who are endeavouring to set aside the Treaty of Waitangi. This petition specifically called out the various versions of the Native Lands Act, which Kotahitanga pointed out were not assented to by the native chiefs in all parts of the island, nor is there any basis in the Treaty of Waitangi for these laws, which continuously bring upon our lands and upon our persons great wrongs. The Queen carefully read this petition and urged the New Zealand government to put things right. I'm not falling for that one, Marnie. That is absolutely not what happened. You're with me now, William. No, this is not what happened. This petition never even reached the Queen. It was sent back to the New Zealand government, which, more or less, ignored it. Which sounds frustrating. Extremely frustrating. But while the Kotahitanga movement never got the powers it sought, it did achieve something. It boosted national Māori unity. Not an easy feat. Yeah, remember how Justice Minister Henry Sewell said the goal of the court was the detribalisation of Māori? Well, it kind of worked, but maybe not the way he expected. Iwi and hapu affiliation was still as important as ever, but no matter your tribe, everyone had a problem with the native land court. That opposition helped forge a national Māori political identity, and this idea that all Māori share common interests is still a powerful feature of New Zealand politics today. Speaking of politics, some Māori fought the land court from within the Pākehā system. In 1867, Parliament established four Māori seats, and those Māori MPs frequently protested the land court and did achieve some measure of change. In the early 1900s, Native Affairs Minister James Carroll of Ngāti Kahungunu, along with a new generation of Māori leaders such as Apirana of Ngāti Paro, made repeated attempts to reform Māori land laws. And the most important of these reforms were known as incorporation and consolidation. 
That meant taking land titles which had been split between dozens, even hundreds of Māori, and bringing them together in holding companies that worked in the best interests of all those owners. Some of these incorporations are still around. For example, Parininihi Ki Waitotara, or PKW, today it manages more than 20,000 hectares in the Taranaki region. There's also the Māwhera Incorporation on Te Taipotini, which owns and manages large chunks of Greymouth. Carol, Ngata and their allies managed to slow down the pace of land alienation. It became known as the Kaihua, or, wait a bit, policy. But unfortunately it didn't last. Between 1911 and 1921, nearly a million more hectares of Māori land was sold. And as the 20th century unfolded, the 19th century idea that Māori people and Māori land needed to make way for Pākehā, who would make New Zealand more productive, persisted. Probably the clearest example of this was the 1967 Māori Affairs Amendment Act. Yep, this was still going on in the 1960s. Among other things, this act gave government agents, known as improvement officers, the power to investigate Māori land. And if they thought that land wasn't being used productively, the owners could be forced to sell it. The backlash to this law was massive. In fact, some suggest it was a key catalyst for the so-called Māori Renaissance, a rebirth of Māori activism. Groups like the Māori Women's Welfare League, the Federation of Māori Students, the Māori Graduates Association and the New Zealand Māori Council described it as the last great land grab. Over the next decade, new youth protest movements like Ngā Tamatoa sprung up, partly in response to the ongoing alienation of Māori land. People like Fina Cooper, a founder of the Māori Women's Welfare League, argued that presenting submissions to Parliament was not enough. Direct action was needed. So, in 1975, she led a hikoi, a march, from Northland to Wellington. Along the way, the marches stopped at local marae, and the hikoi grew. Their famous catch cry was, not one more acre. And the news is the head of the Maori land march near Wellington. Our reporters say the column now seems to number in excess of 4,000 people. It's been joined since... Fina Cooper, later to become Dame Fina, presented a petition signed by 60,000 people demanding an end to the alienation of Māori land. During the 1970s and 80s, there were a number of reforms. The Waitangi Tribunal was established and given powers to investigate historical injustices, including actions of the Native Land Court. Finally, in 1993, Parliament passed the Turifinua Māori Act. After 128 years, the Land Court's power to alienate Māori land was removed. But the Court still shapes Māori lives today. For one thing, the 1993 Act makes it illegal to alienate Māori land in reserves or native title. On one hand, that means the whenua can never leave the hands of the traditional owners. But, on the other, because the land can never be sold, it means it can never be used to raise a loan, which makes it difficult for those landowners to build houses or start farming. The Treaty Claims Settlement process has undone some of the injustices caused by the Native Land Court. The Crown's given official apologies, transferred some land back into Māori ownership, and, as of 2018, paid more than $2.2 billion to iwi in monetary compensation. 
Some of those payments have been used to purchase back parts of tribal estates on the open market. But these payments and the partial recovery of land represent a tiny fraction of what the native land court cost Māori. Māori once owned all of the land in Aotearoa. Today, many thousands... You all right? You can take a minute if you want. It's just, yeah, like, just I think it's so gnarly because it's so that, you know, because it's, it's not, not long ago, it's still long felt ago. now, you know, like, well, I when think. When you say, like, 128 years, that's like, you know, my grandpa's grandpa, basically. Well, not mm. even that, right? Yeah. And just, like, just knowing all of the, just knowing firsthand of all of the things that now, like, as a result, mm. we have, you know, our people it's... have to deal with. Yeah. But anyway, sorry. All right. <clears throat> Māori once owned all of the land in Aotearoa. Today, many thousands of tangata whenua lack whenua. Our people deal with low rates of home ownership and high rates of homelessness. Meanwhile, many land-owning Pākehā families have enjoyed a steady growth in wealth as the value of that land has grown over time. The big reason for that disparity is the native land court. Goes to show, history's really truly in the past. That's for sure. Thanks for listening to the Aotearoa History Show. Make sure to follow or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or whatever podcasting app you use. You can also find a video version of this show on YouTube. If you want more New Zealand history podcasts from RNZ, why not check out the New Zealand War series, or Black Sheep, or Eyewitness. You can find them all at our website, rnz.co.nz forward slash podcasts. The Aotearoa History Show was made with support from the Ministry of Education. It's hosted by William Ray and Marnie Dunlop. It was written and produced by William Ray, and the executive producer is Tim Watkin. Our director is Duncan Smith, and our sound engineers are Phil Benge, William Saunders and Mark Chesterman. We had historical and editorial support from Mike Stevens, David Green, Bronwyn Houliston and Matai Smith. And a huge thanks to the dozens of reporters, presenters, producers, complaints managers and others at RNZ who lent their voice acting talents to the show. Head over to Hulu this March where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie All of Us Strangers starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu.